Hey everyone, this is Kate from the Your Courageous Life podcast, and this is still the Your Courageous Life podcast, but I am partnering with my friend Andy Sewell for a special nine-part series focusing exclusively on lessons from my book, The Courage Habit. Listen in as we talk about how you can apply the psychology of courage and the neuroscience of habit formation to your life to create lasting behavioral changes. If you've ever wondered how someone can learn the skill of being more courageous in their life, this special Courage Habit series that I'm embedding within the larger Your Courageous Life podcast is it. It's going to have a little Courage Habit themed intro outro, but again, it's still the Your Courageous Life podcast, just a special little nine part series where we do a deep dive into the Courage Habit and how you can apply it to your life. Let's get started. Welcome to the Courage Habit Podcast, an exploration of the Courage Habit, the book and program designed to break the fear-based habits holding you back and replace them with the courage-based habits to enjoy the life you want. The Courage Habit was written by Kate Swoboda. She's a life coach, creator of YourCourageousLife.com, and director of the Courageous Living Coach Certification Program. In this limited series podcast, I'll be asking her questions about the book and her experiences teaching her techniques. And he's Andy Sewell an audio producer who has started a new career after two decades of corporate work. Andy is an amazing storyteller. He's ferociously curious, and he's someone who has read The Courage Habit. So he was the perfect person to ask about hosting The Courage Habit podcast. You can learn more about Andy at audioephemera.com. Each episode of the series is a continuation of our conversation. If this is your first time listening, please subscribe to the podcast so you can start from the very beginning. Thank you for joining us, and let's get back into the conversation. All right, so I'm going to pause this role play and check in with you, Andy, and ask how it felt when you were talking about, when I was asking the question about, you know, what needs to happen in the here and now to help Andy detach from these external accolades, accolades, including the critic you you gave a response that to me sounded really um, like, yes, this is, these are exactly the things the critic would need to do. And so my check-in is, did that feel for you internally honest or did it feel like what the critic is supposed to say? So did you it's feel little- an internal shift of the critic kind of going, yeah, actually, if I'm constantly in Andy's ear nattering away at him, he's not going to do as well as if I kind of take a step back. Or did that feel like, well, here's what I'm supposed to say in this moment? I think it's a little bit of both. I think the realization of getting out of the way, like that phrase, getting out of the way, resonated with me more than anything else, meaning a, a critic acknowledging that they need to get out of the way. What it reminded me of is a very typical HR experience that I've had um, it, after being for 18 years in a, in a career where you're evaluated on the scale and it, it, usually they're reduced down to something like, are you falling short of expectations? Are you meeting expectations? Are you exceeding expectations? And I was always frustrated with that because it didn't seem like there was enough finite goal to show these little steps on the way to the next level or the promotion or the job change. And I felt like we are given a lot of those uh, grids, you should be doing these things in order to be at this level, doesn't exist when you're doing the internal because it's just your own life. We don't necessarily have 
that grid of measurement. So when you take that grid of measurement out and you leave it independent, the critic is actually struggling. And I had a hard time uh, trying to look at that in terms of, uh, no, this framework exists. You have to do these things in order to be recognized at this level. And then these things at that level. And it's really triggering for me when I think about that kind of annual review process that's really familiar, but I've always felt like it left me a little short and didn't give me the feedback I was looking for to feel great about what I've done so far and to feel ambitious and excited about what's ahead of me. Yeah. And I, I so, and this is part of how the, the lack of a metric, it really can go both ways with the critic. And this is a, an important thing to, to notice about it. The critic can use a metric to go up. Oh, see, you're below the line. You're not, you're not hitting the line. You're not hitting where you're supposed to be. The critic can also use a lack of a metric to sort of spin people into chaos because there is no metric. So it can grab onto anything, right? It can, it can grab yes. onto, well, there's a 17 year old who just got famous for their sound engineering on, you know, last week. And oh, look at that 17. And it's like, it's such an arbitrary metric. Like who knows what happened with that 17 year old who, got famous. Um, so th- it, it's a game that we can't win. So I, I wonder if we could go back in to the, this experience with the critic one more time and really just go into that place of what the critic is afraid of. Because to me, the place where the critic needs to support you most is that any effort is a good effort. That, that the critic can totally, it's your, it's your best friend with lousy communication skills. It wants you to succeed. <laughs> it's afraid of you not succeeding in it. And that's why it's trying to say these big, scary things to get you to move, to go forward. But at the end of the day, there's this place where it's afraid. And the critic can be very helpful in helping you to see, oh, you know what? If you want to play at this level, you might need to do these things. The critic is not helpful when it basically is trying to, you know, horsewhip you into it. Like, come on, Andy, get it together. These other people, they have the thing, you know, that that's where it's not helpful. So in the here and now, without you achieving a single thing, that's the place I'd love the critic to be supportive with you. So I'm curious about how that might go if we, if we dip into it. And this is also, I would say for you and anyone listening, this is a developing skill. The first time my coach ever walked me through this exercise, I was doing it, but I was also feeling a lot of, oh, come on. This is just, we're just playing like word games. We're just like, you know, rephrase, you know, and it, it actually took a while before it was a place of going, hold on a freaking minute. I wouldn't let anybody in my life talk to me this way. If they were outside of me, I wouldn't let any, talk to my daughter this way. My husband, I know it'd be on, we'd be rolling up the sleeves for a rumble. Okay. <laughs> you know, so why would I tolerate this from anyone else? And the, the response is not to then hit back because the critic is hitting, but rather to go, Hey, it's not cool how you're talking to me. We need to do something different here. Let's rephrase it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So critic, we're stepping back into the role play critic. What is it you're most afraid of with it, with Andy? What are you most afraid is going to happen with Andy? It's, he's just going to get embarrassed. It's, he's going to put all of his energy and his effort into something and it's going to end up being a pipe dream and it's going to fall apart. And the answer is going to be, you never 
should have left the system you had before, which is, you know, comfort of having a corporate career, a place to go, a title to call yourself, and um, these metrics to, to judge yourself on. It's going to be a public embarrassment. Okay. So, Critic, what do you need to say so that you do not embarrass Andy, Critic, and so that you do not tell Andy it's a pipe dream, Critic, and so that you do not insist that Andy has a title or a metric, Critic? I how think can you that support how can, critic, how can you support Andy right here, right now? I think that one thing that I can do as a critic is to acknowledge the effort that's been put into it. And that that is exactly the motion, um, that is, that is done by these experts or these top shelf individuals that you are modeling yourself after. But also you are in the process of maybe developing your own path that is going to be your own unique set of solutions. And experimenting, trying, trusting are going to be benefits. And those risks of trying, exploring, trusting might end up with something that doesn't look perfect, but it's absolutely going to give you information on the next task and the next task. And eventually, you'll find yourself with a long string of successful tasks and an even longer string of information learned and uh, an identity around it, a very personalized identity around what you do in your work and in your personal life. So what I hear, Critic, is that you want to offer Andy support for being willing to try. You want to offer Andy support for being willing to experiment. You want to offer Andy support for being willing to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. You want to offer Andy support for the longevity of what he is trying to do, not whatever's happening just in the here and now, but the longevity as well. And those are the support pieces that will actually pave the way to not feeling as embarrassed, not feeling like this is a pipe dream, not worrying all the time that it's all going to fall apart. So, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say, let's, let's hit time on this as an exercise. And what I usually do when I'm doing this with a client is uh, debrief it. And you and I, we had this is pretty typical for what happens with a client. We have to pause it occasionally, go, hold on, is this really authentic? We have to pause it occasionally, go, wait a second, is this really what, you know, where are we arriving? Is a critic arriving at a place? All that. I'm curious about, or I'd like you to walk me through, how was that beginning, middle, and end? Like at first, it kind of felt like this, and towards the middle, it kind of felt like this, and here's where I'm arriving now. And by the way, no pressure to wrap this up in a neat and tidy bow. You will still be integrating and digesting this conversation later. Oh yeah. And because I'm recording it, I'll have it forever. So that's the great part of it. <laughs> um, I think that it being, uh, embodying your own critic is really uncomfortable because it, it feels, um, it feels like it's not really working for you. And I think one of the things that came up for me is silence the critic or ignore, ignore, really, that's the big thing is ignore any criticism. And that's how you persevere through things is despite you're giving information. When you add the layer on your own internal voice, it starts to feel like the critic has an authority and you're fighting against that authority. But it, it kind of always felt like from my own perspective before this exercise, the critic is always going to win. The critic is somebody that you're never going to win over. The critic is somebody like those old men on the Muppets in the balcony who just have nothing <laughs> but horrible things to say. When I'm the critic, 
I'm kind of recognizing the role um, a little differently. And the difficult part is trying to point out where there are opportunities for change, opportunities for reevaluating how things are done versus tying the outcome to the effort. And I think some critics, like if I just decide I don't like this restaurant or I go on some review site and say this place is horrible, zero stars. I'm not really tying my experience to the entire effort of everybody who is working at that restaurant or at that store or whatever it might be. I'm just saying my particular experience in this one singular incident was horrible and I'd like to express that. And we give a lot of volume to critics of that. This is bad. We, we, we turn our ears up at that. And being that critic is hard because it's, it's actually really easy to say no really quickly. Say none of this is working because you're not getting the results of the efforts you're putting into. And if you aren't getting the results, you haven't been successful in your first effort, then clearly this is not something. That is a hard one to, I, I, to embody because that feels unfair, but that also feels really natural that you're not going to get it up for the first effort. Yeah. I mean, and it's this, uh, and this is part of how the, you know, I, I talked in another podcast that we did about feeling the fear, diving in anyway, and transforming. And the diving in is not diving in as bypass where you try to ignore the critic or the fear, because that really can't be done. But it's going to, you know, in the back of your mind or express itself in some other way. Um, but it's a diving into the intricacies of our experience, which really this, this, just this little bit of, of debrief you've just given me on your experience in this exercise. I mean, we're talking about cultural threads here. We're talking about an entire lifetime of conditioning that you and all of us have received around external achievement and identity and how that is the metric or measurement that we are all supposed to be striving towards. And it gets confusing because there are absolutely plenty of examples and, and, you know, it's the unfortunate stereotype of the coach. I'm a life coach that, that of course does not do this, although there are some that do, but the coach, the football coach screaming with their whistle, ah, you call that an effort, put some dirt on it, get it back in there. Ah, you know, yeah. nothing matters except getting the ball over the line. That is it. And you are a waste of space if you don't do that. This is an entire culture it's threaded into capitalism. It's threaded into systemic oppression. It's threaded into hierarchies, um, race, gender, class, all of it. And then you're just this one little human data point that's representative of the system. And this is part of the, the freedom of the most courageous self that we're untangling because there's something here for you, which is getting to a place where the reframes with the critic become something like, Hey, critic, if you actually really don't want me to be embarrassed, don't want me to fail. I need your support. I actually need you to tell me that recording this one thing today was enough. And if it's not enough for some people, it's enough for me because that's how I showed up. And there's a, in dialoguing with the critic, there's a kind of, um, I, I like how you described the, the sort of battle and the critic is always going to win. But the more time that people spend in the critic's shoes, I find the more they see its insecurity, especially if you go, okay, critic, you're criticizing so much for a reason. Why is that? I mean, like you gave the example of the, the criticizing the restaurant. Why do people go 
and do the like total takedown of, of the restaurant. Because what's underneath that is they had an experience that disappointed them. And yeah. I would say if someone wants to devote their life to taking down a restaurant, <laughs> um, they probably have some emotional coping skills that need some, some work, but, um, you know, when those, those moments happen, it's because there's a kind of disappointment. I needed comfort. I needed, um, I, I mean, I've been to restaurants before where the waiters were really rude and, uh, you know, it felt like, you know, like the, my complaint was not about the restaurant as a whole. It was about that. I felt stupid because of how the waiter made me feel, you know, you know, stuff like that. Um, or how I felt in response to the waiter. I'm taking full responsibility for my own reactions in life. Um, so there's a way in which we have to go, okay, the critic is not just criticizing for no reason. There's a need that it is trying to get met. So let's attend to those needs. The critic, as I heard you expressing it, was I need to not be embarrassed. I need to not feel like there's no benefit from the risk that I'm taking here. I need to feel some validation for my work. So great critic. How about it starts with you? You can't expect other people to give us something that we can't give ourselves. So, okay, critic, how can I support myself and say, Hey, you're doing great so that I don't feel as embarrassed. How can I tell myself, Hey, this risk is worth it because a life lived without risk is not a life I want to live. You know, so it's, it's filling the, the critic stepping in to fill some of those needs, taking some of that energy it has invested in. Oh my God, what if everything falls apart and going, okay, Hey, you're really invested in things not falling apart. Cool. I'm not, I'm not wanting that to happen either. Let's work together on this. I also think that there's a, a, a parallel that I, I started to see. Um, I have, uh, a passion for, for baseball, specifically watching baseball. And my father has this amazing ability for statistics. And so it's a perfect little match for us to kind of experience baseball in that way. And one thing that I've noticed is we celebrate these statistics, right? We celebrate with our athletes or even our, our pop culture icons. We celebrate how many successes they have and we look at their body of work. But what we forget is behind that body of work, whether it's their list of movies or albums or books they've written or home runs they've hit are a number of misses. And um, back to baseball, we celebrate somebody's ability to go up at bat, which is something that every player does. And a third of the time, if they hit the ball, we call them very successful. And if you look at outside of the world and said, if a third of the time my car started, I wouldn't call my car successful. <laughs> yeah. So when you mix the two metrics and you say, this person, every time they're up at the plate, they just kill it. They just manage to always excite and do that. That doesn't happen. Even the best players are only successful at doing what is in that moment is their job a third of the time. And conversely, obviously, you have pitchers on the other end who are also competing directly against somebody from doing their job. And we celebrate these statistics, but when we look at ourselves, we want everything out of the shoot to be perfect and land and get a 10 and everybody stands up and, 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 um, and claps and applauds and acknowledges, we knew you had it, you know, you have it. Congratulations. And mm -hmm. that's just not very realistic. There is a body of work behind every successful 
that includes probably equal amounts of really unsuccessful or at least not recognized as successful efforts. Yeah, well, we're not machines. You know, of course we expect the car to turn on every time. It's a machine. But am I 100% of the time um, a patient partner in my marriage? No. Am I 100% of the time uh, uh, like that ever-present nurturing mother with my child? No. Am I a great friend all, at all moments? No. Um, especially, you know, I love the acronym from the 12-step community, HALT, which is uh, for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You know, for any of these things, we are not ourselves, so to speak. And so it, there's, a, there's a whole societal machine that expects people to work and produce like machines. And it just is not, it does not actually fit for who we in fact are. And I think that one of the benefits I've seen of undertaking this, speaking of, you know, like people, you know, and performance, one of the benefits of all this is that when we, when we start to have more compassion for the insecurity of the critic, that's actually just so, so afraid of failure of some kind or not being enough, we start to see people differently because I think there's a real, um, a real turn that society is taking towards expecting others to have a kind of moral purity. And when I, and I'm thinking of that, like with cancel culture, where someone can find an anecdote or something that some senator or a representative or a celebrity or whatever that they did like 20 years ago. And then they pull that out and like, that's the data point. It's like, I'm sitting here now and I'm just going to raise my hand right now and go, I am, I am sure you could find something that I said or did that was sexist, racist, uh, classist, offensive, rude, et cetera, 20 years ago, maybe even 20 days ago. I, you know, I don't know. I am a learning, changing, evolving human being. And I, I mean, personally, I think cancel culture is particularly pernicious and unfortunate and very fear-based, um, because, what happens when people get canceled for being humans who don't get the, that body of work or that, you know, human experience of, Hey, I messed up. When everybody starts to cancel, they go into a fear-based place. And what I see is that they offer boilerplate apologies rather than true reflection. The truest reflection, um, is the real benefit. You know, I really, you know, I don't, I, if, if I do or say something that is offensive, um, my hope for myself would be that I am supported both from myself and from others in actually taking the look at what I did so that I can change it, not being scared into hurry up and change it so that the line of production can continue and we can, can we can, you know, move along to the next thing. I, I hope that made some kind of sense, but there's a, a huge, um, onion that you're unpeeling that I think is really representative of what all of us go through around anything that we are afraid of not being enough around or failing. And, and yeah, there's, there's a million crappy first drafts in everybody's history for whatever they undertake. Nobody's good at everything from the get go. Absolutely. And I think the, the response that I was wanting to have the critic kind of adopt or understand is this is how you get to that body of work that is respected and accoladed and acknowledged is 
is a lot of uh, iterations and there has to be a lot of effort that goes into it. And if it was so simple as people find something that they are always perfect at and that's what they should do with their life and they should just make their passion be the thing that they're excellent at, we'd have a lot of people who are very excellent at, at really simple things and they weren't interested in challenging, which is the part that I think maybe my inner critic doesn't recognize is that part of the growth effort is the challenge. Yeah. The, 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 the challenge is actually a beautiful opportunity. The, the, and, and you'd frankly, you'd be bored. You know, most people who find the thing that they're really, really good at, and they just kind of sit there, they'd be bored. I mean, as a coach, um, I, I believe that I provide excellent coaching and, um, I'm always looking for ways to, okay, well, what, it, well, this is kind of interesting. Well, now more somatics are coming in, into coaching. What's that about? And, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, like let's, let's reevaluate goal setting from a different place. Let's look at it from a place of this isn't that, you know, it, otherwise the work would be pretty boring. I mean, you know, what, I, I just can't imagine a life being fulfilling where it's just like, oh, I'm excellent at it. So yay. Um, and I think that what I hear the most in, in where you're going is this real yearning within for, from your critic really to just go where you, it is brilliant that you have this goal. Let's not cannibalize the goal. Like, let's, let's go. Yeah, Andy, you've got this goal. You are wanting to play on a bigger game. You're a bigger game in life and in your career. It doesn't mean anything about who you fundamentally are. If you have a failure, it just means that you're on the road to the goal. I mean, it's, it's as innocuous as if you have a goal of driving to the grocery store and you find out they're repaving the road on the route you, you usually take. So oops, you have to go around it and it takes an extra five minutes. That's how truly uneventful 99.9% of all mistakes, air quotes, mistakes really are. Uh, the, the, the effort of just being nimble and being able to adapt to the environment that, that you're presently in. I think that ties it all together. I think being present, acknowledging that you're always in some midpoint of the process and you're always moving forward, whatever the outcomes are, I think is something that I'm going to take forward as to being able to use that when I hear the critic's voice pop up. Brilliant. I love it. Well, thanks for having this little conversation with me. And I'm excited to moving forward on more conversations uh, about this and as I develop my own Courage Habits. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Courage Habit podcast. And thanks to Kate Swoboda for joining me. You can find her book, The Courage Habit, wherever you buy your books. And please shop local when you can. You can also find out information about her, the Courageous Living Coach Certification Program, and other resources at yourcourageouslife.com. And you can find out more about Andy and his work at audioephemera.com. That's audioephemera, E-P-H-E-M-E-R-A.com. Subscribe to this podcast to get all the episodes and share it with a friend. Also, please rate the show and leave a review as it helps others discover the podcast. Join us next episode as we continue our conversation about building a courageous life. Courageous life.